I have to let my cat out of this room. She's locked in. One second. Give me five seconds. He just left the room. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts, Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibovitz. Celebrating Israeli democracy for the ninth time this year. <laughs> Happy election day, everybody. Hopping on the Concord. I know the Concord doesn't exist anymore, but hopping on the Concord right after the show to fly home to vote. Is that like an app? <laughs> Switching his seats on the Al flight so he doesn't have to sit next to a lady is Leah Leibowitz. And tablet deputy editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. Our guests this week are Samantha Frank and Rena Singer. They are the rabbi and rabbinical student behind the Instagram feed Modern Ritual, which presents cool photographs of cool Jewish rituals for thousands of people who live on Instagram. And Saul Austerlitz, who's the author behind the new book, very important in the Oppenheimer household, this book. Actually, I found Sid reading it last night. She was toggling between watching Veronica Mars and reading this book. The book is Generation Friends. It's about the history of the TV show Friends, now celebrating its 25th anniversary. We spoke with him about everyone's favorite 90s and early aughts sitcom. Finally, Liel had a conversation with Michael Roth, the president of Wesleyan University, about campus free speech stuff and other stuff. I love, by the way, how, how the for you. enthusiasm drop is palpable. We have friends. We have Instagram. And Liel spoke to this guy in college about free college. Speech. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, uh, the funniest thing to happen to me this week. And and this so much about my life is is wrapped up in this, right? Uh, I was texting one of you guys, Yontif, like Yom Tov, high holidays, right? Yontif, and um, my iPhone. I should say it's an iPhone six, so maybe my problem is I just don't have recent upgrades. But my iPhone corrected Yontif to YouTube, <laughs> so. It wanted me to uh, say that I would see you after YouTube, yeah. not after YouTube. Have, have, just have a fire like, YouTube. A get in YouTube. Anti-Semitic, but also probably true because like first you have to go on YouTube, check out all the clips, and then you know it's where I stream services. So it also changed Tashlich to Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, um, Stephanie. What's up with you? So last week, after four years of doing this podcast, I randomly shared the first few lines of my Haftorah, like just. For no reason at all, came to me and I shared it. Yes, and you jumped right in. I threw tropes to the wind, and once the episode aired, I quickly heard from a lot of people. The first one was Cantor Audrey Klein. She says Stephanie brought up her bat mitzvah haftorah, and guess what? It is the haftorah for this Shabbat, Parsha Kitetze. I randomly said my parsha around the same time of year that I had my bat mitzvah. And it was the same Parsha for the upcoming weekend. It's like something really kind it's of amazing. It's almost like there's a force that like guides these things from above. Is, is it God? I don't know. Um, the funniest part of this email is when she's like, Stephanie, great job with what you remember from 19 years ago. The first four words were pretty close. And I was like, wait, I have this wrong in my head. These like four random words that are seared into my brain. Like right, the trope close. is actually wrong. <laughs> like that's so depressing. And then the best one was um, from Sarah Bernstein in the UK, who's basically like, I got to shul on Shabbat and like, you know, the end of the Torah reading, the beginning of the Haftarah. And like all of a sudden I heard Raniak Hara and I realized it was Stephanie's Torah portion. <laughs> so I feel like there was just something beshert in the air. This week's Parsha brought to you by Stephanie's Bat Mitzvah. Basically, you're getting to shul whether you want to or not. Part of me was like, should I go just to hear this? And then I was like, where, how would I even find one? <laughs> where would I go? What is it? On Google Maps. What do you wear? <laughs> what, what do you, do? you wear? I don't know. Leo, how are you doing? I am celebrating Israeli democracy, Mark. Right. So we are recording Tuesday. There is an election today. Correct. And I have an election day drinking game in okay. which I take a shot every time someone says BB. 
It's amazing. And until this is resolved. Because is, is this going to be resolved anytime soon? Uh, you know, in the third election in January, when the weather's a bit nicer. Can you actually just like explain to me what the situation is? No. Why did the first one not take? I really can't. I mean, I but wish please I do could. it in 20 seconds. I don't want you to explain it too much. In 20 seconds, a Victor Lieberman, who has his own party and thought he could do a little bit better this time around, said, eh, I'm not going to join the government. I'm just going to force everyone to go to another round because you have two big blocks and you need 61 seats in order to have a stable coalition. And without him, this was not possible. And so he thought, you know, I'll just go again. Take another shot. Leo. I'm going to interrupt you right now because I'm bored. I am too. Um, I have a question for you. Yes. You are a veteran observer of Israeli elections and American elections at this point. Which of them for pure like popcorn and bomba eating and drinking game fun are more interesting to you? Oh, my like, which is- God. There's absolutely no doubt. American election are like, you know, the new Nancy. As crazy as you think this is, it's the new Nancy Myers movie. It's like the sets are all very beautiful. Everyone is sort of representable. Of Even if the person running is horrible, it's still like cinematic horrible. Like everything is very well toned. Israeli comedy is Israeli comedy. Great. Israeli. <laughs> The elections are like are like a Michael Bay movie. They're like 17 different parties. Like some of them believe like crazy single issue things. Like I think all buses should be painted purple. Like just complete <laughs> mayhem and way, way funner. Plus, again, this block thing. It's not just like one person wins and then it's over no matter what. And the worst that could happen is like you have hanging chads and you hang out in court for a while. It's like you have to put together like a Jenga Tower coalition style, uh, which is usually very, very hard to do and involves all kinds of crazy contortions. And here we are again. I will say that my favorite Avigdor Lieberman story, actually the only one I know about him, is from 2011. <laughs> and this was on Tablet's blog at the time. He was like doing an interview um, about something, and all of a sudden, in the middle of the interview, and so there's tape of this, he just like the toilet flushes. And he was just like on the toilet giving an interview, which That's was just like Johnson he was foreign minister like at the time. Like that would not happen here. <laughs> He's a discerning gentleman. It was really just really something. And I've like always remembered that. I was like, oh, Lieberman, the toilet guy. He also got into trouble for punching his kid's friend in a playground after his kid's friend, when both kids, I think, were like nine, <laughs> called his kid like a bad name. <gasps> wow. <laughs> and you dare um, ask, Mark, which election is more interesting. Come on now. I've tried to think which of the 10 little mites on the Democratic primary stage would be most likely to conduct an interview on the toilet or to punch out their little child's playmate. I mean, Trump has definitely done things from the toilet. Trump has definitely done this. I'm just thinking on the Democratic side, would any of them like I actually think Andrew Yang has a lot of rage. I think that. Well, first of all, Marianne Williamson clearly has a lot of rage because anyone who talks a lot about peace and love and pacifism and wellness <laughs> is actually suppressing a tremendous amount You're of rage. such a Hater, uh, so I think if there's, and and <laughs> I actually think Marion Williams and Andrew Yang are the most likely to punch out uh, a kid who, who harasses their kid on, on the playground. This is a good observation. Trump is actually probably the most Israeli-like candidate. I think that's the reason Israelis love him. It's like, oh, we know you. You're our we, guy. We recognize you. Right. We recognize you. Like, it's weird to not see you in the bathroom. <laughs> in news of the Jews this week, first item of news of the Jews, as we've suggested, is that as we record today on, on a Tuesday, there is an election going on. Liel, do you have any updates for us? I have three very important updates. I can't tell you who's going to win because, hey, um, nor could I provide any real insights for the question, why are they having this election? Because there isn't any good answer. But I could give you three great tidbits. The first. Please. The first is that uh, one of the two 
uh, Haredi parties for the first time, realizing a lot of their people are going to be on you know cell phones and tablets no matter what. Put put out a viral video YouTube type ad, and of all the things they could have said to their people, the ad is literally two adorable religious children with you know forelocks and yarmulkes playing their very like chaste games, and are constantly harassed by a sort of obese and very sinister looking. A pedophile who is understood in the context of the movie to be a member of the reform movement, <laughs> which is like so wrong on so many cases. It's like, oh no, don't play with a painting of the Kotel. This is ours now. Like it's so creepy. Uh, while on the subject of pedophiles, Jeffrey Epstein is making a huge comeback in the Israeli election as it is uh, discovered that he was a serious bankroller of the once and hopefully not future Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who is running uh, as part of the Merit's uh, hard left party. Uh, but finally, my absolute favorite Wait, news. Wait, I'm sorry. Epstein <laughs> is part of the Israeli election? Yeah, he bankrolled Ehud Barak's political aspirations. Wow. Yeah, it's hardcore. Of course he did. We shouldn't even be remotely surprised. But that's not even my favorite story. My favorite story is that in a last-ditch effort to get people uh, to go out and vote for him, Benjamin Netanyahu, good old Bibi, prime minister, gave an interview yesterday, Monday, in which he said, if you do not vote for me, Benny Gantz will be prime minister. And if Benny Gantz is prime minister, he will appoint Ayman Odeh, who's the head of the United Arab Party. He'll appoint Ayman Odeh minister in his cabinet and responding to this in probably the best moment in Israeli politics all year Aymanode wrote want to know what kind of minister I'm going to be I'm going to be minister of sending your lying ass home <laughs> oh my god it's basically he actually said that yeah he actually tweeted this at Bibi <laughs> this is basically running for student council in like junior <laughs> high it's amazing what's going on with like the Arab vote stuff like there's the ads and, and things like that can you explain that to me? Yeah, the, the Arab vote is always kind of uh, a tricky, touchy uh, issue. First of all, it's it's way, way lower than you think it is. Uh, it's not very high. Uh, you some, mean the number of Arabs who vote? Right, who bother going out on, on what is an official day off for everyone. It's like a holiday. You don't have to go to work or school or anything. Uh, but the weather's nice, you know, in September. The malls are open. Like, I guess why? it's good that we do voting in November when, like— right. There's nothing else to do. It's also, we don't have any beaches here. To, so. to hang out. Uh, so the Arab vote is right now looking not that high percentage-wise. Uh, there have been major efforts on the left to try and convince Arabs to go out and vote. There have been major efforts on the right to sort of say to Arabs, hey, man, either don't vote or even, you know, kind of more audaciously, if you do vote, your situation, which is factually true, has improved considerably under Netanyahu, vote Netanyahu. Uh, and so, uh, like everything else in Israeli politics, this too is confusing and infuriating. This is funny because, like, I usually feel so so much like shame about America right now, like about our elections, about like the hack, you know, just the general state of our politics right now. And then it's like it's nice to like you know shed light on Israel, where things are just like way more insane sometimes. It's true participatory democracy. <laughs> Taking us down a notch, a more somber note. You remember uh, the synagogue in Duluth, which was destroyed in a fire uh, last week. Minnesota officials have arrested Matthew James Amiot, uh, 36 years old, in connection with that fire. We obviously don't know if he's guilty, but we are all hoping and praying that that crime was solved. This is apparently a, a wonderful old shul with like 
75 people left. It's variously described in news reports as orthodox or high conservative, which is a term I'd never heard. Uh, I think it's you know, very it's sort European, of, right? And very is yeah, Swedish. It's sort of become yeah. ortho flexible uh, as it's tried to stay alive, but like high enlightenment, orth- ortho curious. I went on this guy's Facebook page, by the way, Matthew James Imel. That guy's Facebook page looked like like a building on fire. Like it was such a kind of convoluted mess of poor grammar and inappropriate everything. Shocking that an alleged sociopath would have a uh, a troubled social media presence. We are in this weird place, though, that like you hear that a synagogue has burnt down and you're like, please let it not be arson. And then you're kind yeah, of not entirely surprised when it is. And it's like I feel like there was like a few days when they were sort of like still trying to figure it out. And I think a lot of us here were like holding out hope that maybe it was just, you know, like there was that that church that burned down right by our recording studio here. And it was, you know, this old, beautiful church. And it just was like a candle that a caretaker had left. But there was a lot of speculation in the days. You're hoping it was just a Yurtzeit candle gone exactly. awry. Exactly. And it's it's just right. so sad. The great American Jewish prayer is uh, let it be faulty wiring. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, you're, you're totally it's like it's horrible. Right. Because you don't want to jump to anti-Semitism right away, right? Like you want to let justice whatever and and let the investigation go on. And then you're like, oh, shit, it was. And it's just so like unbelievably depressing. But are we going to be relieved if if it turns out it's just kind of a mentally deranged person with no real anti-Semitic motives? Please let it be faulty wiring, uh, bad maintenance or garden variety mentally ill human uh, who's fallen through the cracks of our mental health system. Not a neo-Nazi. Yeah, it, it's it's true. Uh, of course, we could all move to Belgium, Liel's favorite country. Yeah, speaking of filthy Jew-hating this, neo-Nazis. Where we get this bit of news, I'm going to quote from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency article, a Belgian university included in its sign language dictionary, this is online, a video dictionary, a gesture meaning Jew, which involves signaling a hooked nose. The European Jewish Association on Monday protested in a statement the gesture's inclusion in online videos on the website of the dictionary compiled by the University of Ghent. So I did a little bit of research on this, right? Like, how do you sign Jew? And it turns out that there's an interesting history behind this. So I'm going to, in the New York Times in 1994, had an article about um, various sign languages trying to rid themselves of, of ethnic slurs. Quote, and a sign for stingy, derived from the sign for Jewish, stroking an imaginary beard, has started discussions among deaf Jews around the country, though no new sign has actually shown up in its stead. The sign adds a clenched or tight fist to the imaginary beard. <laughs> so, and then just one more, uh, in 2012, this article from The Telegraph in England, miming a hook nose to refer to Jewish people is also now deemed unacceptable by signers who've replaced the old sign with one involving a hand resting against a chin and making a short movement down in the shape of a beard. So it seems like in Europe anyway, there's been this discussion, you know, should it be the hooked nose? Should it be the stroking of the beard? I think we missed like an obvious possibility here. I Which mean, is- a lot of other people have beards, but circumcisions? A little snip. Shouldn't it be like penis with what about a like snip? a prayer book or like a like that, that what's that thing called when you go back and forth? Oh, shuckling. The shuckling. It, yes, yeah. it would be shuckling. That's no, that's really good. Or I mean, should it be wrapping to fill in perhaps, or checking your head to see if your yarmulke is still there? By the way, that doesn't describe a lot of Jews. Is the problem. Say. So it's like okay, yes, you so have you about seventeen ways Jews, to say yeah. Orthodox Jews. I don't get it. I don't know a lot about sign language, but you can just like decide Jews are hook noses. Like, how is that possible? So you know, we we put this question to our Facebook group last night, and there was a lot of interesting discussion. Some people said, look, it's not for hearing people to discuss how deaf or, or hard of hearing people uh, communicate with each other, which I'm not 
totally on board with that. I mean, if it turns out that a very offensive sign is being used, actually, one of the major arguments of progressivism in the past few decades has been that people do have a right to talk about how they are referred to, right? That if someone says, "I'm I, my pronouns are she, call me she, whether you want to or not, um, by that logic, Jews can say, actually, we don't want you signing us with a big hooked nose. But to go a little bit deeper on this question of sign language and the Jews, we reached out to an expert. Liana Jelen-Tapnak is a freelance uh, ASL interpreter, American Sign Language interpreter, and also a soferet, a scribe. Uh, she knows Hebrew, she knows Yiddish, she knows ASL. She's kind of like one-stop shopping for these questions that I'm totally ignorant in. Liana, thank you for joining us this morning. Happy to be with you. Okay, so we've got this news story out of Belgium. I gather that this is not the first time this issue has come up, right? What can you say about the way that the word Jew or Jewish is signed in in the sign languages you know? We went to um, the website referenced in the story to look, and it looks like in that particular sign language, there are maybe like at least four or five different signs for Jew, including the hooked nose, but not exclusive to the hooked nose, just according to that sign language dictionary. I obviously don't know their local sign language, but uh, one of the signs that they use is the same as the sign that we use here in America, which is basically showing um, a beard on the chin. Um, That's the sign that we use. It looks like there are two different hooked nose signs, um, (laughs) as well as one that shows like payas, which actually is, um, that's the sign that we use here in New York, both for Hasidish as well as for Williamsburg. Really? Like the actual neighborhood of... Just the whole neighborhood of Williamsburg. <laughs> if you want to describe some trust fund baby living in a loft in Williamsburg, you just go four locks? Yeah, you're like, yeah, oh, that, uh, you know, Connor Appleseed lives over in Payesville. <laughs> I haven't seen a sign for Flatbush Borough Park. I think it's just BP. Okay. So did, do you ever think about even the beard, you know, is, is a little bit interesting, right? Because we were talking earlier about this and Stephanie pointed out like, okay, but we're describing the look of religious male Jews, right? So it's not, it, mm-hmm. it is, there is a kind of, you know, it's not entirely unproblematic as a sign, but maybe that's, maybe no word can be all things to all people. Whether it's sign language or any language or any culture, you need to remember the language has its own history and its own culture, which interacts with and intersects with your own experience and your sensitivities, but it might have a totally separate journey from that. And I think part of that has to do with, and my huge grain of salt disclaimer here is that I am not a deaf person. I did not grow up within the deaf community, so there are limits to what, like, I can't really speak for the deaf community. But, you know, as a person who works within the deaf community often um, and as an ally to the community, I can say that that the deaf community, number one, um, has a language which is very visual. So certain things um, which might be more sensitive in spoken language um, are just, just more obvious. Like, for example, it's not culturally insensitive to say, like, oh, that fat person over there, you know, just bought a drink. Whereas in English, in, in the culture that I'm familiar with, that would kind of be rude. You would want to be like, you would try and pick some other physical descriptor. You'd be like, oh, the lady in the purple shirt, and you avoid talking about how they're fat. But, you know, if that's the most obvious thing, in deaf culture, that might not be considered rude. So I guess the big question then is, as hearing American Jews, are we entitled to be offended by deaf people in other countries with their sign languages making gestures like the big hooked nose for Jews? Or is it incumbent on us to say, well, that's their space and they have to figure out their own linguistic conventions? I I mean, I think that we should 
I don't know, maybe talk to some, some hearing people in that country and, or, and some deaf people in that country. I don't think it's really appropriate for us to dictate what people should be doing in other countries. But I think, you know, there probably are some limits to that. For example, in America, the signs for, you know, Chinese and Japanese used to indicate slanty eyes, which we now believe is rightfully so, I think, is, is not the appropriate way to be depicting people from those countries. And those signs have evolved here in America. I don't know what the local signs are. Um, the sign for Hawaii used to depict hula dancers. Like there was, there is some evolution in, as things catch up. I'm not saying that it's okay for deaf people to, you know, do all kinds of offensive things because they're oppressed. And right. they, don't they, have, know. they have license. That's not, that's not, <laughs> I, I guess I'm, I'm just saying, you know, there, there should be a grain of salt and a level of, I think, maybe some amount of forgiveness, maybe. For sure. And of course, it's worth pointing out that there are that there are deaf Jews. I mean, I have a deaf yeah. Jewish cousin and that's those are people in the community who would be excellent candidates to speak up and, and help negotiate the evolution of these words. Right. Liana Jelentopnak, thank you so much for joining us on Unorthodox. It was a pleasure. That was terrific. We, of course, want your comments on this. Uh, a lot of you know more about American and other sign languages than we do. Our number is 914-570-4869. I do want to say before we leave News of the Jews that there was a cool picture making the rounds on Twitter of actor Jeremy Piven from my one of my all-time favorite shows, Entourage. Also, of course, from the movie Say Anything. I could keep going. Putting on to fill in at Bellissimo Hats in Brooklyn, which just raised the question, like, why? Was Chabad doing outreach inside the hat store? Did Piven have his tefillin bag with him, but realize he'd forgotten to lay tefillin that morning? I would say no to the second one. (laughs) Um, I would say that that guy loves a photo opportunity. And there was like an Orthodox Jew there with tefillin. And so maybe it was like an Orthodox owned store. He was going into the hat store to get a new strimal for Shabbos (laughs) because his one frayed out, you know, as one does. We are here with Samantha Frank and Rena Singer. They are the rabbi and rabbinical student, respectively, behind Modern Ritual, an Instagram account that models passionate feminist Jewish life and content. Welcome to you both. Thank you you so so much. This is so exciting for us to be here. Please start by introducing yourselves. So this is Samantha Frank. I'm the rabbi, half of us. Okay, I just became a rabbi in May um, at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, which is the rabbinical school of the Reform Movement, attended school here in New York. My name is Rena Singer. I am a fifth-year rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in the Village in New York City, and I am from Seattle, Washington. I imagine as you go through rabbinical school, people are like, you know, I want to, I want to end up here. I want to end up here. You guys are sort of like, you know, what we're gonna do. An Instagram, like here, you sort of have a very different path. What What is Modern Ritual and why were you both moved to create something like this? Both of my parents are reform rabbis and they love being synagogue rabbis. So when I decided to go to rabbinical school, I knew that I was going to be the rabbi of a synagogue. But we were in our third year of rabbinical school and we were both teaching Hebrew school. And I was sitting with this group of sixth graders and sixth grade girls who were studying for their bat mitzvahs. And they were sitting in a circle and they were kind of ignoring me. And they were like, oh, my God, the only thing I do is Instagram. All day I'm just on Instagram. And whenever my parents look at my parental controls, all they see is Instagram. And I said to them, oh, cool. Would you follow a Jewish Instagram? And they said, if it was cool. I was like, okay, well, I guess we have to make a cool Jewish Instagram. And I looked and Instagram at the time was the third largest social media platform in the world. I think it still is. So I thought, oh, there must be plenty of Jewish Instagrams. All there was was crazy Jewish mom 
and hot Israelis eating hummus. Both of them run by Mark, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this, both of which we love, um, but they, we, we saw that there was an opportunity to actually bring some Jewish content that you could really sort of cut your teeth on that would be really exciting that you could learn and take something away more than just beautiful pictures. Now, wait, was either or both of you an Instagram user? That is how we got into this together. As I was like, who is the coolest rabbinical student I know and who knows the most about Instagram? Samantha Frank. And I think Rena came to me with this idea like in the library at HUC New York. And I was probably sitting there with like a Torah on my left side and then my phone opened to Instagram on the right. I so think the Gemara says Torah on the left, Instagram <laughs> on the does. right. So for people who don't already follow modern underscore ritual on Instagram, I'd love for you guys to describe uh, one of your recent posts. I'm thinking of this one uh, from about six days ago. So this is a picture of Rena and I sitting um, on my neighbor's front stoop and we are looking at a, um, a volume of the Talmud and the post begins, God, G spelled out G-O-D, then God with an exclamation point instead of an O, and then God with a hyphen. And part of that, part of the genesis of this post came to me from people asking, why in Judaism do we sometimes not write out the name of God? And this is actually sort of the type of question that we're really looking to answer on Modern Ritual. It's a type of question that maybe some people know, maybe they forgot. And it's just a really, really easy, accessible way for people to sort of feel like, oh, now I know that in Judaism, the name of God is really, really holy. And we treat it as holy both in Hebrew and in English. For some of us, we do that differently. There are a lot of different names we have for God. And now I have like a little feeling about what this whole Judaism thing is and why God is important and why it's important how we communicate about God. So what we do with every post is we kind of hit people with an image and with the content. So even if you're just scrolling through and all you see is this image of two young women reading the Talmud, that is already a shift in how you're perceiving. Images are so powerful and looking at one for one second changes your perception of what the world can look like. So by posting numbers of pictures of women reading the Talmud, women blowing the shofar, we're changing people's images in their mind of what Judaism looks like. Because if you Google image rabbi right now, you will see 600 pictures of men in black hats. And that is it. So we're, we're changing that. I walked into a religious school where I work yesterday and I was introduced as a rabbi and this wonderful seventh grade student looked at me and said, you don't look like a rabbi. And then followed that with, you don't sound like a rabbi. And I said, there's lots of different types of rabbis who look and sound different. That's okay. Tell our listeners who don't know Instagram, why Instagram? I think a few weeks before we started this Instagram, The New Yorker came out with an article about van life. Van life is a movement in which thousands of people quit their jobs, moved into VW vans, which they redecorated, went to national parks, and then started living out of vans. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. I missed that article, but that's what I'm doing. Podcast yes. out. Okay. Van Except life for in. the hilarious thing is that... Um, Refinery29's Money Diaries just came out with a woman who did this. It was just kind of a behind the scenes of actually how hard it is to uh, quit your job and Damn move it. into a van. <laughs> um, but she still like <laughs> makes a lot of money somehow. So I don't know. But what I learned from that, realized from that article, was that Instagram is a platform that makes you think about how you live your life. That I was looking at it, I was looking at people who did yoga and how people decorated their homes and how people eat. But because you're looking at all of these images, you are 
you have this intimate access into people's home lives. Um, and then you can redesign and redecorate. And we actually know that more buildings are putting up murals because like our world is being shaped by Instagram because people are so into taking pictures. People travel to more places because so they can take pictures on Instagram. And so if it is about how do you live your life, and our question is about how to teach people how to live Jewishly, then Instagram is the natural platform for that. Some boar who, who looked a lot like me, right, who came to you mm-hmm. when you came out with this idea and said, guys, this is really vapid. Instagram, there's no redeeming quality to it. Maybe you get some kids to follow some stuff, but like it will never be something real. You'll never really reach people's souls. What would you say to a, a, a boar like me? We love a challenge. And I would say that we, <laughs> and I would say that, you know, we've been doing this now for a few years and we've been really, really deeply inspired and touched by the things that people share with us and the things that people come and ask us for. So recently we had someone who came and wrote to us and said, I have a friend who is going through a medical procedure and she is actually not going to have a uterus. And is there a blessing? We're going to do a funeral. I think often we, when we talk about Jewish identity, when we talk about what does it look, what does it mean to look like a Jew, we are just bowled over by the hundreds of people who comment both questions to us, but also who interact with one another, who are actually gaining really, really meaningful Jewish, they're learning and they're connecting to one another. And I think it's especially, especially important for people who don't live in New York City, where there aren't awesome, progressive Jewish communities. Just because I think that is the really nice answer. Samantha and I sometimes play the kind of good cop, bad cop role. And so my response to the, to the board would be, um, we don't have a choice. There, the mode in which people have communicate has completely shifted for the following generation. And if Judaism doesn't learn to catch up with that and doesn't learn how to make that space not vapid, then we're going to fall behind. So this is our attempt to be able to reach people in all moments of their lives. Do you see this as a, as a gateway drug? In other words, do you think someone is going to go on the Instagram account, have these interactions and be like, huh, maybe I'll give Shul a shot. We know it's the gateway drug because we've experienced it. (laughs) And that is absolutely our goal. We have no interest in replacing synagogues. We can't replace synagogues. I think there's absolutely nothing like looking someone eye to eye and connecting with them. And Instagram is a great, great, great place to start. And we're always encouraging, like, people write to us, what's a great community I can get to? People write to us around the holidays, especially, where can I go? There are other um, there are other platforms that put out lists, and we're always happy to share that um, because there really is nothing like connecting in person. Okay, so you've walked into the den of skeptics here. I mean, if Liel's a little bit I mean, skeptical. I'm literally a follower of because, this account on but Instagram. it's so <laughs> funny because you guys are a podcast. Right, well, so I was going to say, there's an irony here, right? Because we have this thing that we're always explaining to Boris. We're saying, what yeah. is this radio on my phone? And <laughs> what does it have to do with Judaism? So on, on the one hand, of course, you know, we're all on the same team here, which is that technology can be put in service of, you know, that said, as I as as my listeners know, like my parenting philosophy as someone with a 12-year-old and a 10-year-old and, and other children um, is like no Fortnite, no vaping. Mm-hmm. Like basically like stay off your phones and stay off the jewel and you'll be like <laughs> <laughs> sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever. No Fortnite, no vaping is, is the, the key thing. And I've said to Rebecca, she has a phone, but I've said no social media for now. And partly that's because she's 12 and these things will get discussed as the years go on. But partly it's because, sure, it can be a gateway drug to actual real life interaction. But what it seems to be for a lot of people is an addiction that means they're not even talking to their family at dinner. My experience 
which is how this was got started, was that most of the kids that we were working with in Hebrew school didn't do anything Jewish at home. So they were being thrown into Hebrew school once, maybe twice a week. And the things that we were teaching them, like I would hold up a picture of challah and they had no idea. They didn't know what it was because their Judaism was totally regulated to the space that was the synagogue. The They're like, wow, my... a braided brioche. Yeah, interesting. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, hmm, hungry. It looks good. Let me think about something else. Sorry, I'm gluten-free. I can't yeah, eat that. Exactly. <laughs> so our question was, in an age where parents are not modeling Judaism for their kids at home, how can we as a rabbi and a future rabbi help people learn how to be Jewish at home without literally walking into their homes and shoving a pair of candlesticks on their table. Though that'd be awesome. That would be great. If the two of you followed yeah. them home and shoved candlesticks. I mean, also now that holograms are becoming more of a thing, you know, we can <laughs> replicate ourselves. Virtual you know, reality. Every, yeah, exactly. But the, but technology is a tool um, that people use when they lie down, when they rise up, when they walk on th- from the doorposts of their house, on their on their way, and so it gives us what we've heard from people is that given that they're on their phone so much, having Jewish content that is meaningful and stands out to them is a break from the addictive voice of the Instagram that tells you that you're not enough or that you need to buy more clothes or you need to look a certain way or eat all of these matcha powders or whatever. We are not we're not doing that. We're we're shifting the space given that people are already there. Oh Jesus. Might have to get on Instagram. Uh thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh our guests are Rabbi Samantha Frank and almost Rabbi Rena Singer. Mm-hmm. Uh their uh, Instagram account is at modern underscore ritual and you can also find all their posts online at modernritual.org. Thanks for being our Jews of the Week. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Saul Austerlitz is a writer who teaches comedy history at New York University. His newest book is Generation Friends, an inside look at the show that defined a television era. Boy, does it continue to define television in my house. Great to have Saul here. Welcome, Saul. Thanks so much for having me. So, Saul, I'm an alien. I just came to this planet. What is Friends? (laughs) And who is on it? A massive Friends of which you speak. (laughs) Well, Friends was a sitcom that ran on NBC from 1994 to 2004. And it was a show about six young single New Yorkers and their um, romantic lives and, and their friendship with each other. And it was an enormous commercial hit. It dominated the Nielsen ratings for basically its entire run. And it's having a renaissance, right? What's what's the evidence for the renaissance we hear about on, on streaming services? Well, Netflix brought the show to streaming about five years ago, and it's been enormously successful. They don't release numbers because they don't release numbers in general for their shows, but they did agree to pay $100 million to keep it on Netflix for one additional year, which says something about how popular it is. And, and anecdotally, it sounds like Friends is either the first or second most popular show on the entire streaming platform. It's found an entirely new audience, mostly of younger people, some of which weren't even alive when the show first premiered and who've discovered it and felt like it speaks to them in some fashion. Here's how good this book is. This is really probably one of the television shows that I despise most thoroughly, completely, and passionately. And I read this, like, giddily. It was a great read. I take that as high praise. Well, 
And my somewhat lower praise is that in my household, there's no show more sacred. And I also love the book. And I can't believe it's been 25 years. And now we have a definitive book about it. And I just got to ask, Jamie Gertz, we would have had a different world if it had been Jamie Gertz and not Jennifer Aniston as Rachel. It's a pretty fascinating story. Yeah, she had been offered the role. Uh, other performers have been offered the role, but she was one of the people who was offered it. And she wanted it specified that she would not have to shoot on Friday nights because she was Sabbath observant. And they ultimately decided that they couldn't make that allowance for her. But yeah, it would have been a completely different universe. So instead of going with a real Jew, they went with like a crypto-Jewish character. Exactly. Man. So why Friends? Like, what was it about the show that allowed it to become this international sensation that actually like kids are still streaming on YouTube today? Yeah, I mean, I think I want to begin by saying that it's so strange that the show is finding new fans. Pick any show from that era. It's not something that younger fans are into. And so I think that there are a couple of reasons why. I think one is that Friends feels like a show that tells younger fans what the future is going to be like. This is what being in my 20s is going to be like. This is what having my first job is like, having my first relationship, having my first heartbreak. And it's obviously wildly idealized. But I, I do think that there's something about that. And I think at the same time, part of what attracts people to it is that the world as younger people look at it, is unattractive at the moment. It's scary, it's terrifying, it's full of lunatics. And so getting to sort of dive into a show like Friends that feels so comforting and soothing, and the biggest problem that anyone has is, does he like me or does he not like me? And you spend all of your time with your friends, and even when you're an adult and you're raising a family or you're getting married, you still have breakfast with your friends every day. I think that's a really comforting fantasy. Could it be any more unrealistic? (laughs) My theory as an amateur friendsologist has always been that one reason it still plays well is because it's a soap opera, because episodes hook you into wanting to know what happens. Was that in the DNA from the beginning? Yeah, I think they realized early on seeing the actors perform with each other that Ross and Rachel were going to be the kind of epicenter of the show. But it takes them a while to figure out what works best in terms of what the audience wants and what works best in terms of telling the stories. So if you go back and look at the early episodes, there are a lot of scenes where they send the characters off to work or some other place to interact with a completely different set of people. And over the course of the first season, they realized the audience does not like this. The audience wants the six characters to be in a room together. And over time, they realize instead of having the characters have adventures that we see, they just describe those adventures that they've (laughs) had to each other. The old journalistic rule of tell, don't show. (laughs) That's what I live by. Half of the characters on the show are Jewish, but you never know it almost. Like, can we talk about the Jewishness on the show? You get into it in the book in a really interesting way. Like, Ross and Monica, like they were coded as Jewish, but they were so not Jewish. Yeah. The official word that I got from the show's creators is that Rachel is Jewish and that Ross and Monica are really Jewish. Or half Jewish. Yeah. Their dad's Jewish. That's never made clear on the show. Yeah. But their mother sort of comes off as this wasp. Although I believe that Christina Pickles is actually Jewish. (laughs) actually Jewish. And their dad was Elliot Gould, who is Jewish coded and otherwise, right? (laughs) And so the ruling is that Rachel is. Yes. Interesting. Well, the nose job. Although initially, the Rachel's last name was supposed to be Robbins. And so I wonder if they initially thought of her as being not Jewish. But if there's any name that's more coded, like this name was changed to not sound Jewish than Green, it's Robbins. I mean, those are two of the great Jewish names of all time, it seems like. <laughs> Every Robbins I know is Jewish, in fact. So. Very true. But it is kind of 
troubling. Like Jewishness is like treated in an annoying way on this show. I mean, we talk a lot now about how white the show is, how not diverse the show is. Let's talk about how like problematically un-Jewish the show is. For the period, it was doing what everyone else was doing, right? Seinfeld was doing exactly the same thing. Like all these characters were coded Jewish, but like went to great lengths to say like, oh, well, we're not Jews because we're George Costanza and not clearly Larry David and Elaine Bennis. That's true. Although I would say that Seinfeld has a lot more explicitly Jewish content or at least like Jewish themed content. But is that also part of Friends of Success is that it's deracinated enough that it can play in parts of the country that right. aren't down with sort of New York ethnicity? Well, it's very much of a piece with its depiction of New York. You know, Seinfeld is very much in a particular place. It's about the specifics of New York. Friends is in New York, but it it's meant to feel much more like a small town. There is a small cadre of people out there who want to attack this show for having six white stars. I do think that it would obviously be cast differently today. And even at the time, there was a lot of complaint about Friends being an overwhelmingly white show and not just about the six main performers, but also that it depicted a New York that was overwhelmingly white and in which no one seemed to not be white. And even for critics in the 90s, there was a sense that that was unusual or, or not in keeping with the reality of New York City. Friends probably could have done a much better job of being more diverse there. And later on in the show, they end up introducing some other characters, but it feels a little bit late and a little bit short in terms of their effort. I should say, before we let you go, Saul, that Friends keeps yielding gifts to my family. One is that it has saved my wife and me from having to have a proper sex ed conversation with our daughter, Rebecca, because if you watch enough Friends, eventually the double entendres come into focus and you've basically had sex ed. And the other is now we have this amazing book that I can recommend to her uh, and to everyone I know. The book is Generation Friends, an inside look at the show that defined a television era. Its author is Saul Austerlitz. Thank you for being our Jew of the Week. Thanks so much for having me. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Frances Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture, as a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. 
You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? Hello, Stephanie, Mark, and Liel. I wanted to make a slight correction to the fascinating Donnie Shapiro interview. She noted that sperm donation is frowned upon. Not true. In Jewish law, it is preferred to use the biological father's sperm, if it is viable, for artificial insemination. In fact, there are some kosher reproduction labs where there is a mashkiach, yes, literally someone who is there to watch the sperm, ensuring that Mr. and Mrs. Gold have a child together with their biological material. Because mix-up in labs is rare, but it does happen, and this prevents that occurrence. But if the husband's sperm is not viable, it is now preferable to use non-Jewish sperm to avoid the issue of mumzerut, a person born from an incestuous relationship, and avoiding the issue of being half-siblings, etc. Yes, there are some ultra-Orthodox rabbis who would prefer a Jewish donor. However, the mainstream Jewish opinion favors non-Jewish sperm. Yours, Yoelet Lipinski. Thank you, Yoelle. Very useful information for couples out there struggling with infertility and considering turning toward artificial insemination. Next, to the listener line. This one from Maria in Queens. I just wanted to give you a quick response to one of your queries about expiring bomba, which is a terribly, terribly sad story. Uh, But you should know that you can cook a lot of different dessert-type snacks with bomba, and I use it a lot in the kitchen. For example, you know, it makes great pie crust, particularly cheesecake crust. Uh, you can use it to make Rice Krispie treats and substitute, of course, bomba for those Rice Krispies. You can use it to make Muddy Buddies, which is already a hit in Israel with the hazelnut-flavored bomba. But, you know, you add in your extra chocolate there and powdered sugar. It's delightful and delicious. So, you know, those should work for some of you out there with a sweet tooth. I love everything you do, and I love you all, but I love Liel and his guns the most. God bless you, Maria and Queens. My people, they know the bomba, they know the firearms. <laughs> Queens kind of is your borough. You're sort of a Queens guy. 100%. Liel, have you ever heard of Muddy Buddies, which apparently are big in Israel? Uh, muddy Buddies is uh, what we call <laughs> during the army when there's no women around, and you know, you have your Muddy Buddy. All right. Bomba lovers can also find this amazing new recipe um, from a Not Edmoni's brand new cookbook, Shook. It's crispy cauliflower with bomba and peanut tahini sauce, which just mm-hmm. sounds like Liel's mm-hmm. dream come true. It also just gave me a thought, like, is our next book, now that we've we've locked down newish Jewish, is our next book just the Bomba cookbook, like 50 Bomba recipes? That's actually really smart. Step one, yeah, I, get crazy stoned. <laughs> Step two, just eat your Bomba. <laughs> But that actually is the first, like the intro is by you talking about getting stoned in the army and making Bamba peanut sauce noodles, right? And then it's like, 
we start with that recipe. Then getting stoned in college that, you know. What about like children? It's children's food and like stoned college kids food. Also, you can gum it if you're elderly and don't have teeth. That's right. It's beautiful. It's bringing us all together. And finally, we got this call again about Stephanie's Haftora. Hi, Unorthodox. This is Michael Postal Baron's Levine Schwartz. I am calling mid-episode because when Stephanie started sharing about her Haftora and said, Rani, I immediately said, Akara, Lo Yalaza, Pizzi, because that's my grandfather's uh, Haftora portion. And late in life, when he remembered very little, that was one thing he remembered. And he would just start chanting that one line when there was anything that gave him a thought of Jewish context. Uh, so thank you for that. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you, Michael. If you have calls for our listener line, 914-570-4869. We do take emails at unorthodoxatalentmag.com, but we really love hearing your voice. 914-570-4869. Friends, it's never too early to get your Hanukkah shopping done. The newest Jewish encyclopedia, our guide to all things Jewish and Jew-ish is out in time for the high holidays and let's face it in time for the next Hanukkah Hanukkah always rolls around again order your copy online at your favorite local bookseller and you could win a Zabar's gift basket to enter forward a copy of your receipt or confirmation to unorthodox at tabletmag.com Hey, recently, Liel hopped on the phone with Wesleyan University President Michael Roth to talk about how you can get your child into Wesleyan. No, not really. To talk about free speech on campus and campus climate and culture and all that stuff that we're reading about in the news all the time. Have a listen to this call between Liel and Michael Roth. Our guest today is Michael Roth, the president of Wesleyan and the author of Safe Enough Spaces, a pragmatist approach to inclusion, free speech and political correctness on college campuses. Welcome to Unorthodox, Mr. President. Thank you very much. So before we even start talking, uh, I, I want to make I want to make one thing really clear, which is that the position uh, that I'm going to take in this conversation is really kind of a of a really easy, even glib one, because I'm I'm the guy who gets to criticize college campuses all he wants uh, in the media, whereas you're the person who actually has to educate young Americans. So I want to be very mindful of this gap between us, and also very respectful of the work that you've done, because there's something about this book that really struck me. Uh, it is kind of an attempt to say, hey, look, guys, um, college campuses ought to be places where you come across ideas that sometimes infuriate you, sometimes intrigue you. But at the same time, there is something to be said that students ought to feel safe enough in classrooms to actually learn and open their minds and their hearts. T tell us about maintaining that tension. There's a lot of criticism of college campuses today, and, and some of it seems to me the kind of criticism that older people just level against the young on a routine basis. Guilty as charged. Uh, and Well, not just you, but I mean, in the book, I talk about the ways in which uh, the 60s rebellions were were blamed on Benjamin Spock and the way the kids were raised and so on. And Alan Bloom in the 80s complaining about rock and roll, turning people into erotic monsters, uh, which he thought, at least in print, was a bad thing. Uh, but he, he uh, and that, that continues with today's complaint about spoiled kids. I mean, the word coddling uh, the, uh, is, is just a, a synonym for spoiled. And, and uh, I, I think that the, that, Although there's always some grain of truth in these complaints, um, our job on college campuses is to figure out how to educate the students who are there, not to complain about the, their nature or their, their formation uh, before they get to college campuses. And so I think it's very important 
for our students who are facing a world of extraordinary uh, risk and increasing inequality to provide them with a framework where they can feel that they can explore new things, different kinds of ideas, not uh, fall back into the easy postures of either being a consumer or being a, you know, a warrior for one idea. And our job is to, is to make them feel safe enough, uh, but not too safe. And, you know, I, I'm kind of riffing on somewhat tongue in cheek on the psychoanalytic notion from the 50s of the good enough parent, uh, which is the parent who didn't make you psychotic, uh, you know, and you didn't have to be perfect, but you certainly didn't want to give kids total freedom, go play in traffic and see what happens. On the other hand, you didn't want to overstructure their lives. So I, I think my I'm trying to take a position that acknowledges the tension between uh, threat and openness between the risk of retaliation um, and uh, the importance of feeling included if you're going to actually explore new ideas. So in the book, you write, um, but aren't students today oversensitive? Isn't their demand for trigger warnings in inclusive environments a sign of their desire to substitute comfort for intellectual rigor? As a teacher, you write, I've not found this to be the case. Yeah. Give us a report of the kids. Are, are the kids all right? <laughs> well, you know, some of them are uh, all right, and some of them are suffering, and some of them are rich, and some of them are poor. I mean, that's the big difference. Is there's so much more diversity at our campuses today. The, the students don't behave in the same way that they did in, I don't know, 1967 or 1977, because it's a, it's a different demographic on campus today. But I do think, you know, we, we see uh, an increase in the use of mental health facilities, which in part is a good thing because it shows a destigmatization of uh, uh, psychiatric and psychological services. And on the other hand, the students are, uh, are under a, a lot of pressure and some of them uh, need help uh, coping with that. So I wouldn't want to be too uh, sanguine and say <laughs> the kids are all right, but I think the kids are educable, you know, that they're ready to learn and that our job as teachers is to figure out how to help them learn, not to criticize them for their inability to learn, which is really just if you criticize your students because they can't learn, you're just confessing you don't know how to teach. <laughs> as, a, as a recovering academic, I, I take that to be a very poignant thing. You're not just a, a university president, also a professor, a longtime educator. C can you give us one or two examples uh, from Wesleyan in which you really felt that this tension was properly held, making everyone just as uncomfortable as they needed to be to actually learn and just as comfortable as they needed to be to feel like this is a sort of inclusive, uh, productive environment? Absolutely. I'll tell you the first time I encountered a, a request for trigger warnings, those, that phrase hadn't been invented yet, but I teach a course on uh, philosophy in the movies, which is a course in, in uh, how uh, films represent the past, especially very traumatic aspects of uh, the past, like uh, the attempt to exterminate the Jews and um, other mass killings. There's a, a film about childhood sexual abuse, so really very intense and, and challenging things, both intellectually and emotionally. But my first time uh, I encountered the request was when, at an art school where I was the president and teaching. And one of my students, after seeing uh, Distant Voices Still Lives, a beautiful Terrence Davies film, came up to me afterwards and said, cursing at me, basically, because art students can do that. Uh, <laughs> Rob, <laughs> you're, you're crazy because, you know, you showed us this film. My father used to beat the hell out of me. And that film, and the film is full of violence by a father against his children. And 
and he was clearly very upset, very agitated, and uh, I, I was taken aback because the film, although I just described it as using very beautiful, which it is, it is also extremely hard to watch at times. And and I said to him, I, I just said, as I think uh, as an automatic human response, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry this happened to you. And he said, yeah, you should have told us. And I said, well, if I told you, would you not have watched the film? And he looked at me like, you idiot. <laughs> of course I would have watched the film. It's a brilliant film. It's beautiful. So I said, what do you want me to do? And he's, he looked and he said, I don't know. I don't know. And he just stormed off. And I thought to myself, this is good. <laughs> in the sense that, in the sense that um, I have to help prepare the students without helping them avoid the issues. And so I tell them when they're going to watch Capturing the Freedmans or in class now, I tell them this is a film next week about childhood sexual abuse. I have uh, 80 kids in the class, 100 kids in the class. Some of them have some pretty direct experience with these issues. Almost, I don't think I've ever had someone uh, say they don't want to watch the film. If they did, I would give them permission not to watch it. So the warning is more of a, hey, I'm aware as a teacher that some of you actually have a different relationship to this material than I do and that many other students do. I teach Alice Siebold's uh, uh, Lucky, which is a, a, an account of her own rape. Because I think it's really important for our students to understand how the idea of the victim gets turned into the idea of the survivor, the virtuous survivor. And so I know in a class of 80 people, some of the people in the class have had experience of rape or sexual assault. But instead of avoiding the issue because they need to be protected, I actually just tell them, this is going to be hard and we're going to be respectful of one another. We're, we're going to read this book together. And again, I've had students come up to me and say, it's going to be really hard for me, uh, Professor Roth. And I said, you know, let me know what I can do. And they go do the work. And so I don't think we have to shy away from really uh, damaging and, and terrifying sometimes material. I show Night and Fog every year in the first class of, of this uh, movies and philosophy class. The feel-good movie of the year. Well, it, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's Night and Fog is, is – uh, I saw it in religious school and a synagogue on Long Island – um, at the time, you know, they didn't point out that he doesn't use the word Jew, except maybe once in the whole film. Um, but it's an intense film, of course, about the extermination camps. And last year I had a student who was a senior. She said, oh, Roth, I had your class as a first-year student. After that first class, I went into the field and cried. And I said, I was actually happy. I said, that's good, right? Because you, you should cry about that. <laughs> and she said, yes and no. But it was this acknowledgement that yes, you're giving us really intense, hard stuff. And yes, you care that we have real reactions to it. You're not going to criticize us for actually crying about a Holocaust film because actually it's worth weeping over. So he here's the thing. I read your book and, and I'm listening to you now and I, I love the book very much and was very moved by it. Because uh, Because I, I really, really deeply want to believe it. Not believing it, you know, is, is a very dark proposition, again, especially for someone who comes from academia, the one thing that sort of kept uh, gnawing at the back of my mind and, and still does as I listen to you now is a lot of this interaction uh, needs to be, I don't want to use the word regulated because it seems too official, but needs to kind of be handled uh, by faculty, which if they're, you know, Michael Roth and they're very, very thoughtful and kind of come to this with all, you know, with all the good uh, spirit and all the right reasons, then, then this could look like a very good, meaningful growth experience. However, I did encounter, and, and I know that as a university professor, you encounter too, a, a whole host of uh, faculty members who 
are, shall we say, um, way more dogmatic uh, than an educator ought to be about this political agenda or another, uh, who uh, are tenured into their position and therefore not necessarily inclined to listen to the president or the students or anyone else, uh, and who are also very likely to not really make these important distinctions between what is actually hurtful and difficult and, and complicated and offensive and what is just kind of just slightly outside the circle of what you find politically acceptable. Uh, how, how do you square that? <laughs> well, I, small I, question. I'm not, I'm not naive about the uh, fact that not. Um, all teachers are, you know, at the top of their game. That that uh, ac- academics, like other professionals, um, uh, you know, there's a range of 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 talent and and consideration. Uh, I've had the good fortune to be at mostly small places uh, like Wesleyan throughout my career as a student and as a professor, and and I found people who very consistently care deeply about the welfare of their students and not just about making them feel good, but about teaching them. And I think my job as both a teacher and as a a president of a university has a certain platform in the United States. My job is to encourage my colleagues to stand up for the things they know they they believe in and stand up and that includes standing up for the right of rights of people in the classroom to have views different from the professor to and on next week I'm teaching Aquinas and uh, I just wrote about this in the Atlantic that you know I'm going to try to get the students to really feel this tension between rationalism and mysticism and Christian grace and salvation. Uh, these are not um, things that I am invested in personally as an, uh, as a secular Jew, but, but I do want the students to feel them as deeply as possible. And I teach them with all my heart. And then the next week we go on to Machiavelli <laughs> and I do that. And I think that's what teachers do. I'm, I realize not everybody every week, but I do think my job as a teacher and as a, a person who gets the right about education is to encourage my colleagues to take this stance, to encourage intellectual diversity, to meet the students where they are, and to lead them to a better place. Speaking of intellectual diversity, you have made uh, the, I think, still very controversial claim among you know some academic circles that you're not unopen to sort of affirmative action, if I will, for, for people with conservative viewpoints. Yeah, I, I wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago calling for an affirmative action plan for conservatives, which, you know, pissed off everyone because conservatives didn't think they, they – we don't need affirmative action. You know, <laughs> we don't like it. And 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 then my uh, friends on the left uh, who, who actually hardly ever use those words anymore, they talk about inclusion and equity. Uh, they thought I was sullying the words by attaching them to conservatives. But I, what I wanted to do was to create a conversation about bias in the classroom and bias uh, in the humanities and interpretive social sciences in particular. That doesn't mean that you know you can't teach something that you disagree with, like I'm teaching Aquinas, let's say, or today I'm teaching Aristotle. Um, that of course we all we often teach things with which we uh, don't have uh, automatic intellectual sympathy. On the other hand, when I looked around at the at the lectures being given at the syllabi that I come across my desk, uh, it was very clear to me that we are not taking seriously 
the conservative, religious, and libertarian traditions. And it's harder to do that today because the Trump administration has made it seem as if all conservative ideas are just an exercise and an idiocy and avarice. And that's that's a shame because I think there there are other ideas that are, are you know are really important to bring to the fore that have nothing to do with the current administration's degrading of intellectual standards and political life. How do we solve this problem though? Because because we have again these tenured masses uh, who are not likely to welcome someone with you know divergent viewpoints uh, quite often, in, at least in my experience. We have to get people to talk about that, and I think I'm get, I've, I think I've empowered my students and faculty members to talk about it. They argue about it. Some of my colleagues say to me, I think uh, I think it's outlandish, frankly, but they say to me, well, the conservatives rule everywhere else. We can rule here. And I, I just think that's a mistake. And I make the argument against that. I, I don't think tenure is so much the issue. I mean, uh, you know, I think academic freedom has to be protected from from willful administrators <laughs> like me. Um, but I, I think that that um, the issue is really uh, reminding our faculty that they have a professional obligation to cultivate intellectual diversity. And when I brought together a group of conservative and religious students last year to talk about their experience in the classroom, there was one very politically conservative guy who wasn't religious at all. He was just politically conservative. And I asked him, do you experience um, um, uh, prejudice in the classroom? And I really expected the answer to be yes. That's why we were together. And he said, you know, frankly, everybody finds me fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> because he said his professors really want to draw him out and talk to him because he provides a good argument. He was obviously very smart. He enjoyed being the contrarian. And I hope that happens a lot. I know it doesn't happen everywhere. My job is to not just you know bewail the fact that it doesn't happen everywhere. My job is to cultivate the uh, and incentivize this uh, effort to create greater intellectual diversity. So in, in a really interesting point that you make in the book, but you also made uh, in, a, in an opinion piece not long ago on, on CNN.com, you, you kind of took issue with uh, those, especially on the right, who kind of say, well, you know, we should be able to say or do or, or invite anyone we want onto college campuses because free speech is absolute. And, and this one quote here that, that I want to read back, when those from dominant groups or in positions of campus authority insist that this is not real harm because it's not physical violence, or when First Amendment fundamentalists claim that any constraint on speech is a step on the slippery slope towards tyranny, we can detect the ideology of market deregulation at the heart of free speech dogmatism. Students who have been deregulators' bold attempts to solidify existing hierarchies recognize that power matters in regard to speech as well as other things. It's never the case that everybody gets to speak, not everyone gets heard. Explain, or, or as they say on college campuses, unpack that for us. How does that work? How should we approach this? Uh, it, it's clear that's, that uh, over the last oh, maybe 20 years or so, uh, the uh, courts have adopted a libertarian approach to free speech and uh, and, and quite different from from the previous generations of jurisprudence in this area. And what that means is that they have uh, classified as speech all kinds of activities uh, engaged in by people with power and money, um, uh, to, uh, and, and therefore protect those activities. And the, you know, the Citizens United case is the kind of poster child for right. this. 
But you, you, you it's, it's easy to imagine someone making a gun on a laser printer and saying it, it's not a gun; it's expression, and it should be. I should be able to, you know, uh, produce what I want on my laser printer, and I'm producing bombs or guns. I mean, it it, it becomes uh, uh, the use of speech as a way of uh, pr- uh, changing policy has been uh, dramatic in the courts. And I'm no expert on this, but I cite the experts <laughs> in the book. I think on college campuses, the students recognize that some co- points of view are heavily funded and get brought to campus a lot. Others, not so much. And so we can't just depend upon this idea of a free market of ideas to bring to bring uh, new concepts to campus. That's why I think we need to be proactive about bringing conservative ideas to campus. But we also uh, need to protect the campus from people who just come there to intimidate and harass others. And you know, my uh, story is a <laughs> for the man had a big impact on me was when I was a young professor in Claremont, California. The president of Pomona College found out the revisionist historians group had rented uh, space on the Pomona College campus, and that was a neo-Nazi group that just just was a bunch of Holocaust deniers that had a you know an innocuous title, the revisionist history group or something along those lines. And he he against the advice of counsel got up and went over there and said, "You can't be on this campus." You know, and they said, "We'll sue you." And he said, "Yes, I know you will." <laughs> and I do think that's just not a slippery slope. That at times you have to say, this is not about the education of our students. This is about targeting, in that case, Jewish groups and other non-white groups. Um, and, and we're not going to have that on our campus. There are close calls. And I think in, in close calls, we should, defer, we should really lean towards free speech and debate. But there are other times when it's very clear that someone's coming to campus just to intimidate others. And we don't have to provide them a home for intimidation or violence uh, just because um, uh, of this libertarian notion of free speech. You had mentioned free market. One of the things that really fascinated me about the book, and I frankly wasn't expecting it, I thought it would uh, steer you know, kind of clear of these issues, and I was very happy that it didn't, was the notion, uh, you, know, you start the book, the first section uh, is about how universities really have the struggle between on the one hand, trying to bring in uh, as many people who are, you know, of uh, low uh, income or first generation in college, et cetera. And on the other hand, really trying to do their best for anyone who's already on campus to make sure that their experience is, is sort of as robust as possible. And, and you wrote, you know, this is another one of these tensions and, and few universities, uh, you know, do both and, you know, even fewer do both well. And I sort of really liked the sentiment and, and enjoyed uh, reading about it. But then I thought, you know, um, a lot of the universities uh, that you actually talk about in, in the book uh, are immensely, immensely, immensely wealthy institutions that could, uh, if, for example, they didn't, you know, sell franchises to Abu Dhabi or Shanghai or, you know, in, got involved in very major real estate deals – uh, do a lot better uh, for for their communities. Do, do you accept that as as fair criticism? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are some universities, and we tend to focus on them because they're famous and they're they they have these big platforms. There are some universities that can do both, and 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 they should. And uh, but I, I 
what I've was in my experience, and Wesleyan is a wealthy institution. It's it not as wealthy as the, the ones you're probably thinking of, but but what I, with my experience uh, in talking to the board of trustees about uh, increasing the percentage of our campus that are uh, Pell Grant eligible, so kind of low and lower middle class students, low income and lower middle class students, um, they said, well, wait, you know, the students who you have there say they need more help. Now they're getting full tuition and they're getting full room and board. They're getting jobs from us, but some of them want more. And I think in you know in a college campus, it's so interesting because you're you're in a dorm. You're, you know, you might be a kid from uh, San Antonio who grew up in foster care, and you're living next to a guy whose parent's name is on the building. And that's not going to happen again. <laughs> you know, in America, is so segregated by economic class. But right there, you have this 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 uh, economic uh, uh, tension, and some and 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 students who are aided want to have what they think of as the full experience of being on campus, and so they want more aid. Uh, and sometimes that's going to come at the expense of having more students from lower income uh, families on campus. Now, at the very the wealthiest schools, um, they they could they could do a, certainly a better job uh, at at both. But in most schools, there is a tension between um, uh, meeting full need uh, and 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 having more low-income kids on campus. And in our case, I'll give you just one example. I was with a, a group of uh, five or six uh, low-income students at lunch, and and uh, they said, "Well, you know what? We we really think we should get." plane tickets home during the break. You know, you should, the university should pay for that trip, uh, an extra trip each year. Everybody else goes. And I, I understand that, I said. But at the same time, if I did that for all the students who were at be eligible, there'd probably be only three of you here next year right. instead of uh, the five. And they said, that's fine. <laughs> and I didn't really, I was quite surprised by that. I mean, I thought they would say, Roth, cut your own salary. It's too big. And, you know, that, which would be a fair thing to say. But, but they said, no, that's fine. And they thought if they're going to be here, they should be, have the full experience. And so there's just this tension between having a full experience uh, at an institution where there are a lot of wealthy people who act like wealthy people. Uh, when I was in college in the 70s, there were certainly worth wealthy people around, but they kind of tried to act like the rest of us hippies, you know. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't. They no didn't more. See that and no more. So I think there was that, that tension, but that doesn't get us off the hook. My job at Wesleyan is to raise more money for financial aid so I can have more a more div- economically diverse student body and that the students who are here from um, more modest circumstances have the same opportunity to be successful as the rich kids. I mean, that's the job I think I have is to, to have make sure they graduate on time, that they don't have any debt, that they and that they have the access to the majors that will uh, that they want. You have publicly, uh, you know, spoken out against the BDS movement, which is quite popular in some universities, and yet you're aware that for many Jewish students and and I should say Jewish parents, uh, there's an increasing feeling that if you are in any way you know, I don't want to say proudly Jewish, but certainly uh, a proud Zionist or or, or pro-Israel, pro-Israeli student, uh, things are going to get very, very, very uncomfortable for you in campus. Uh, how do you see that situation, and, and what do we do about it? It's a great question. It's a great question. So I had this question raised to me by two alumni who graduated more than 55 years ago. We, this was this last uh, last summer at the reunion. 
And these two guys, two old Jews, who I kind of met over the years, I've been here a long time already, and they said, so Roth, what's happening? Just ask the question you just asked. And I looked at them and I said, well, they, people may tell you it's uncomfortable for them here now, but you guys wouldn't think it's uncomfortable compared to their experience. <laughs> not at all. And so, and I am very, one of my alums said to me, Roth, what I really think is surprising about you is you act so Jewish in public. You talk Jewish. You say you use Yiddishisms in, in my in public uh, spaces, and I do it all the time. It comes easily to me, and so I don't. It's not like I have to force it. But I am very aware that I'm carving out a space um, of of not protection that's too safe, but that's safe enough for Jewish students. And I do think Jewish students, um, you know, they they're not, they, <laughs> they they have a certain risk, you know, and that's. I I don't think I could take it away, and I'm I you know having grown up with that risk myself. I don't know that it's 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 a good idea to take it away because the, when they leave campus, that risk doesn't go away. So I think that um, uh, it's important to have these conversations. I have the Chabad rabbis at, in front of the university center, uh, standing next to the guy putting up an apartheid wall. And everything in between, and I think that that's okay. Um, I, I have parents call me say this apartheid wall has got to come down, and we don't agree with it. I, I don't agree with it, but I don't take it down. When Judy Butler's talk was canceled in New York because she was uh, identified as a supporter of BDS, I invited her to come and give the talk at Westland. I disagree with her, but I think she should be able to make her case. And she she got pushed back from people at Wesleyan, and she got support from others. But I think it's I think yeah, the Jews are all right. Amen <laughs> um, <laughs> to that. And so and so since you already are in, on this uh, rabbinic in this rabbinic mood, <laughs> uh, let me ask you the final question. Give us you know it's 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 just a few days after the the beginning of the new school year. Give us give us a very brief kind of reassuring sermon. Tell us tell us that everything's going to be okay or don't. But uh, what 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 should parents and students uh, kind of feel and think and focus their hearts on as they enter this new school year? Well, you know, what I want students to do is to realize that the opportunity to have an education and to engage in debate and inquiry that will expand their horizons. Um, is a is an enormous privilege to use that word when uh, and I, as, but it's a good thing it's a good privilege and that we should promote access to it but I also want them to realize that the public sphere is so polluted that they the the the, the time they have on campus is all the more important and that they have an obligation to work in whatever way they choose. To, to clean up a public sphere that will uh, eventually uh, in, in infect colleges and universities big time, um, and that the stakes are very high, and that we should give our students the, the tools, as Daniel Allen says, uh, uh, for civic preparedness, so they can turn whether there's, uh, what they're studying, whether it's computer science or religion or philosophy or biology, they can turn what they're studying into work that will make a difference to correct for the enormous corruption and pollution of the public sphere. And I, 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 we need those students to do that because my generation has failed, and, and we need the students to have the civic preparedness to, to put a stop to the this extraordinary slide into the to the muck um, that's going on in Washington. President Roth, thank you so much. You're very welcome.
Mazel tovs. I am going to give one on behalf of our producer, Sara Fredman-Ader. Her father, Stephen Fredman, is finally realizing a lifelong dream this week and driving across Route 66, seeing the whole country and binge listening to Unorthodox along the way. Uh, safe travels, Stephen Fredman. Also, from me, from, from the Oppenheimer Kirshner Meshbucha, the engagement this week was announced of my cousin, my first cousin once removed, Brittany Jill Kirshner, and her beloved Blake Henry Rosen. You can find out more by seeing their announcement in the Philadelphia Jewish Exponent. Mazel tov to Brittany and Blake. Uh, and Liel. I am going to extend a hearty Meshbucha Mazel tov to uh, Israelis who, as of uh, 10, 16 a.m. on a Tuesday, which is when we're recording this, are showing up uh, to the polls to celebrate their democracy in historically high numbers. Mazel tov, and we'll see you again in four months. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Yeah. <laughs> Stephanie. I don't have a mazel tov. I have a shout out. I got my, my doctor to download the podcast. He really likes listening to Israel Story. And I was like, Dr. Cohen, you know, if you listen to podcasts, you should also be listening to Unorthodox. Because he was like, oh, tablet, Israel Story, right? And I was like, yes, Israel Story is amazing. I was like, while you're at it, get your girl's podcast. Wait, who, was, who was the doctor who did your sinus drainage? That was Dr. Prasad. He's actually course. very close with Dr. Cohen. And as everyone as nice. everyone may remember, I walked into my sinus surgery and he said, he quoted from the episode before where you said, Prasad yeah, is the Prasad new is Cohen. Prasad is the new Cohen. Um, I like that we're getting the whole Stephanie Butnick like, medical, medical team. Community. Somebody could assemble your whole team. <laughs> Uh, and finally, uh, a farewell to the superb Rick Ocasek, whose songs and videos with the cars defined 1984 MTV watching late night sleepover at Marcus Jackson's house for yours truly. Probably the, the most underrated rock star of all time. TBD, to be debated. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. On the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or better yet, call us. We love hearing your voice. 914-570-4869. We often come to you live. To learn about those shows, go to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. And to book us, email Josh Cross, J Cross with a K at tabletmag.com. You can get unorthodox swag like shirts and mug cozies and onesies for the little one at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast or on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sara Fredman Ader. Josh Hahn helped out with this episode. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. And theme music is by Golem. Online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by one Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision by Rabbi Samantha Frank of Modern Ritual. And we come to you from Argo Studios, which is flying home to vote in the Israeli elections. Shalom, friends. Every new boy that you meet doesn't know real surprise.